Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. In an age where endless streams of data, options, and information are available, it can feel like every choice, from what TV show to watch to how to invest your money, ought to be optimized. And yet making any choice, much less an ideal one, can seem completely overwhelming. So how do we figure out what to do? Well, much of the time we don't. Instead, we outsource our thinking to technology, experts, and set protocols. This, my guest today says, is where some real problems can start. His name is Dr. Vikram Manchramani, and he's a Harvard lecturer who studies future trends and risk, as well as the author of Think for Yourself, Restoring Common Sense in an Age of Experts in Artificial Intelligence. Today on the show, Vikram explains how our increasingly complex lives have led us to increasingly rely on algorithms, specialists, and checklists to make decisions, even though experts are best suited to entangling complications rather other than complexities. We've talked about the difference between the two. We then discuss the issues that can therefore arise and rely on expert advice, including the siloing of information and the application of misdirected focus. Once we diagnose the problem, we then turn to the solution and how we can harness the good that technology and experts can provide without undermining our ability to still think for ourselves by doing things like asking experts about their incentives, knowing our own goals, triangulating opinions, and crossing silos. And we end our conversation with how the serendipitous discovery of perspectives that can come from flipping through a paper magazine and browsing a bookstore can be part of restoring self-reliant thinking in the 21st century. After the show's over, check out our show notes at awim.is slash think for yourself. Vikram Mantramani, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Brett. Thrilled to be with you. Well, you just put, came out with a, a new book called Think for Yourself, Restoring Common Sense in an Age of Experts in Artificial Intelligence. And in this book, you're making the case in the past few decades, lay people, like just regular folks, have been increasingly outsourcing their thinking to experts and even technology. And we'll, I'm sure we'll dig into some examples you know, deep, but just off the top, you know, sort of give us a big picture view. What are some examples that you've seen where you see people just outsourcing their thinking to experts and technology? Sure. So, well, Brett, I think it starts off with the idea that we're drowning in information and data. And then the result has been more and more decisions are being put in front of us to be made. And so we have too many choices. And we think because there are more choices, that there is a perfect answer, that there's an optimal decision to be made. We also know we can't make that by ourselves, that we don't have enough information to do so. Or frankly, we have too much information and we need some help. So we turn to expertise. And expertise can be embodied in the form of technology, human beings, i.e. experts, or even checklists and rules. And so just think about the GPS device that many of us use when we navigate our way around town. A lot of us have stopped thinking about maps. We don't actually know sometimes where we are, but we'll listen to this little voice that tells us, make a left up here in 300 yards, stay in the right lane, merge left, <laughs> etc. So that's a great example where we've stopped thinking about the dynamics of geography and our path within it, and we've resulted in just outsourcing our thinking to the GPS device. Well, another example of outsourcing or thinking of technology is you know, algorithms, right? You go to Amazon and instead of thinking, oh, do I really like this book? You just rely on the algorithms that Amazon says, yeah, you're going to like this book. So shut up and buy the book. That's right. Think about it. You used to go to a bookstore, at least I used to. I don't know how old the listeners are, but I used to go to bookstores where I would browse the shelves. I went looking for a topic, possibly a specific book, and I would find adjacent titles, other things. And it was this somewhat unorganized, albeit fortuitous, search process that often was fortuitous. You know, nowadays, you end up in these little echo chambers. You expressed interest in a book on 
baseball strategy. Amazon's going to recommend a lot of baseball strategy books to you over time. And they're going to get more and more specific because that's more and more likely based on your revealed preference of having purchased that book or that topic. And so, yeah, I think that those algorithms are conscientiously managing where we pay attention. And what sorts of problems can pop up when we over-rely on experts in technology? Well, well, think about it this way. Experts in technologies live in silos. And we live in the real world where there's a context outside of those silos. But when you rely only on the siloed information, you're not seeing the big picture. You're not seeing the context. And so what you get is information that's optimized in a particular domain, but may not be optimized for you or your overall context. So I think the biggest problem is the silo effect, if you will. And when did you start noticing this outsourcing of thinking was starting to cause problems? Well, it really has to do with my first book. My first book was about financial bubbles. What I realized was economists and those that were very narrow and focused, i.e. those who were deep and specialized, sometimes missed what was deemed very obvious to the layperson. And what I realized was actually a multi-lens, multidisciplinary view could help you identify dynamics that a single perspective might miss. And so what I realized was actually every perspective was limited, biased, and incomplete. Combine that with the fact that we often outsource to people who have really deep focus and expertise, and what you realize is you're outsourcing your thinking to incomplete perspectives. So why do that? (laughs) Or if you're going to do that, maybe consult multiple perspectives. So, you know, we can triangulate by discussing your insights with that of an insight from another expert, with another expert, with another expert, and really triangulate to get some sense of what the problem really is about. So you mentioned earlier, one of the reasons why we started to rely more on experts is that there's just, we're just flooded, inundated with information. There's so many choices, but not only that, I think everyone's experienced information overload, which is why they go to Google and they look for, you know, they Google like best whatever for my kid. We'll talk about optimization here in a bit, but besides being flooded with information, things have gotten more complex. Like the information we we have to work with is much more complex. What does that look like? I mean, let's flesh that out for us a little bit. Like what does the increasing complexity look like and how is it pushing us more towards the, you know, towards experts and technology? Yeah. So I think there's a, there's a little nuance here, Brett, that I'd love to make sure I clarify for the listeners. And that has to do with the, the terminology. And so Let me first describe what I think are a couple of different types of problems and environments that we may be facing. The first is a simple environment or a simple problem, and that's one where there is a clear cause and effect. This is a problem that could be solved with automation very quickly, software, a spreadsheet. Think about how to calculate the interest on a credit card balance. There's a spreadsheet that says, all right, here's your average balance, here's the interest rate, there's your interest payment. Alternatively, you can get to something that I would call complicated. Complicated environments or problems are ones where there is, in fact, a clear cause and effect that it takes an expert to help you identify that because it's layered in multiple different causes and different effects. So think about the fact that your car didn't start this morning. Maybe you were more you know, astute on this matter than I would be, but I would likely seek assistance, especially as these cars have become more technologically sophisticated. Is it the starter? Is it the alternator? Is it the ignition? Is it the battery? Is it there? What, what is the problem? I don't know. There is a problem. It didn't start. It takes an expert mechanic, someone who understands and can disentangle all those causes and effects to get to it. 
This is the domain I call complicated that experts really thrive within. The minute you cross the threshold from complicated into complex, what we have are emergent phenomenon. This is where causes and effects are not clearly linked or identifiable. And it's because there's just too many moving parts. This is the domain of social dynamics, right? When you have lots of individuals thinking for lots of reasons, different thoughts and interacting to produce behaviors that emerge. So it's an emergent phenomenon. It's in this domain that our instincts are to lead us towards experts who promise us salvation, who can solve these problems. But these are not problems that are solvable. These are problems that are understandable and that we can try to get our arms around, but there is no solutions. And so when you employ an expert who's skilled at helping us navigate a complicated dynamic in a complex dynamic, what you find is you've brought a man with a hammer to a situation where there may or may not be a nail, but he's going to find that nail. And so that's the domain of complexity where I would suggest it really does make sense to use multiple experts or multiple perspectives to really get your arms around the type of problem you're facing. Well, the example of how an expert, even though they're, they're an expert and they're very knowledgeable about the area, they still can't solve the problem of complexity. I mean, this is your domain, financial advisors. You talk about that. But basically, the track record for financial advisors isn't great. Yeah. Look, I think the financial advice community, it's hard to really gauge whether it's great or not, right? Because even the assumption that financial advice has been suboptimal usually is based against some optimization logic of, oh, we want to have the maximum blank. Well, what if instead a true financial advisor understood what their clients' needs were and increase the probability of achieving those rather than trying to maximize just some you know, theoretical objective such as, oh, we just want to produce the max return. Well, the max return comes with some risk. So what if instead the person said, I want to make sure I have enough money for my kid's tuition when he goes to college in three years' time and it's this much money? Great. Then we're going to increase the probability of achieving that number rather than just objectively try to maximize in this, you know, ambiguous way. So it's not clear to me that financial advisors are unproductive or, or useless. I think they're probably very productive and very useful. The key is really taking the time for financial advisors to step out of their own little silo of maximize returns, maximize returns, and understand client needs. And you're also seeing, I mean, I'd say in the past 10 years, you've seen companies pop up promising that they can use artificial intelligence to, to solve these complex problems. The idea is that you can get these supercomputers thinking about things and they can see all the different possibilities in these emergent properties. But what, do you, what do you think? Is that actually going to do anything or is it just, can, can that help us solve problems using technology? <laughs> yeah, look, technology has forever, as far as I can tell, promised us this salvation into a utopia where everything is knowable and everything is optimizable. The problem is technology, at least so far, has been designed by humans that have limitations and biases and other issues. And those get embodied in the very technologies that are produced by humans. So when you get to the domain of artificial intelligence or machine learning, where they are trying to learn from themselves, 
the possibilities really could be endless, but they're not anywhere near. The concept of artificial general intelligence, you know, a, a computer or software that can actually think and understand common sense dynamics doesn't seem anywhere imminent to me, at least. So, so that's one dynamic I would say. But it also, if you think about even something that's becoming increasingly popular as a topic like autonomous driving, if a car is driving, Let's say the car is about to hit. This is a common problem in, in the, the discussion of fairness and in, in some of the decision-making literature. But if the car is going to hit either a person on the right side of the road that has a baby in a carriage and is pushing it down the sidewalk, or two old people on the left side of the road that are walking with their canes down the street, and that's it. It has to choose one of those two. Which one should it hit? I mean, those types of ethical problems that emerge in the software are things that humans have grappled with, but the software doesn't know how to grapple with that. The software is going to deal with it, whatever it's been programmed to do. And so you have these ethical considerations that emerge. I mean, the truth is software embodies values. Algorithms embody the values of the people that design them. And so there you go. That's the problem. That's the problem. All right. So besides increasing information, besides increasing complexity, you said another reason that we're starting to turn more towards experts to help us solve our problems is this, this desire to optimize everything. What does that look like? And why do you think we're trying to be the best at everything? Yeah. Well, look, I mean, think about, I'll give you a great example that I did mention in the book, which is my wife and I would sit down after a, a long week and we'll plop ourselves down on the couch And we'll say, all right, let's just watch something. And, you know, maybe she's had a week where she's in the mood at this point for an action movie. Maybe I was thinking more, you know what? It was really like a heavy week. I want a comedy. We're convinced because there's, I don't know, a million movies on demand available between Xfinity, Hulu, Netflix. I mean, you go down Apple TV, what have you, Amazon Prime. I mean, there's got to be a movie that can thread that needle perfectly, right? There's got to be. You think so? There's so many movies. Why wouldn't there be? Of course there is. And our mood is perfectly suited to that exact movie. And so, but finding it is a non-trivial task. And the truth is we probably won't. And so what ends up happening is we think because there are so many choices out there in the world that we get effectively paralyzed because we know that an optimum, an optimal perfect decision probably exists but we can't find it. How do we find that movie? How do I know? I mean, oh my God, you would think I'd have to consult Rotten Tomato. I'd have to consult different movie critics. I'd have to find this. I'd have to find the genres. Look, the stakes are not high enough to do all that, but we're left with this low-grade anxiety. And the result is we're probably going to be unsatisfied because of all that choice. And so rather than sort of empowering us that having all this choice and we can find whatever we want, we end up with this low-grade regret Ah, God, that movie wasn't perfect. There was probably something better. It's this fear of missing out, fear of missing out on the perfect choice. So we often hear about this FOMO in in a lot of walks of life, but the fear of missing out on the perfect choice exists in many domains. And so the result is, well, let me go with the algorithm suggestion. Netflix thinks based on my prior watching that I'll like this. Let me try it, right? Or you know, based on these decisions I've made in the past, the expert believes, my financial advisor thinks that I'm very risk averse. They're not going to put me in Zoom stock because it's volatile, even though it went up. Oh, God, it was volatile. What have you. And so 
the fear of missing out on that perfect decision that is elusively promised constantly by the explosion in choice and opportunities really leaves us with this tendency to run headlong into the arms of experts and technologies. Well, yeah, it seems like in the, the, it sounds like what you're saying, the technology actually encourages to think that way because technology, they want, there's data with everything. So you can see popularity, but like the data could be meaningless. I mean, I've had instances where I've tried to you know, get whatever, I, whatever some company said was the best. And then I get it. I'm like, this wasn't that great. This is the problem. This is FOMO invading all walks of life effectively, right? I mean, think of it this, but I went and I got to get a drink uh, at Starbucks and, you know, it's kind of feeling like a coconut milk latte, but you know, they had this picture up there. It says real popular. The app suggested that, you know, dollars off if I get this other drink, this mocha something, I'm trying to manage my calories. I'm worried about fat. I'm trying to optimize, you know, the caffeine to, I don't know, the caffeine to carb ratio, some weird thing that someone somewhere said is important. And you know, so I get it and yeah, it's okay. But there was a perfection promised at one point. And by the way, this goes right headlong in conflict with economic thinking. Economic thinking has often said more choice is always better. It can't be worse, right? I can ask you, Brett, do you like an apple or an orange? You say, I like an apple. Say, great. Do you like an apple, an orange, or a pear? Well, now you either like the pear or you can still like the apple, right? The orange is never going to be better. What we find with humans is you say apple or orange or pear, and then you introduce a banana, and they say, I like the I like the orange. You say, wait, hold on a second. Why did you like the orange now? You'd like the apple more than the orange. The apple's still there. Now I introduce a banana, and now you like the orange? What happened? Well, it turns out choice is confusing, and we drown in these sort of decisions. We get paralyzed. I mean, you hear about analysis paralysis. It's choice paralysis. There's been wonderful research that shows after a certain point, more options actually paralyze rather than empower. And that's what we're finding. Right. And so that's why we decide to go to Google. Just Google, tell me what the best thing is to buy or Netflix, tell me the best show to watch because I don't want to make the choice. Yeah, it's easier. And by the way, in some walks of life, I would tell you, you shouldn't think for yourself. You should just blindly follow what it's right. When the stakes are low, why do I need to try to optimize the movie I'm going to watch with my wife on a Friday evening or Friday evening, right? Why should I do that? Why not just, it's an hour and a half to two hour commitment. And in fact, if I didn't think of it as something to optimize, but something instead that I tried to satisfy, I'd probably enjoy it better. Right. Okay. But then when the stakes are high, you don't want to just rely on the, the expert or the technology. That's right. All right. No, that's, that's exactly right. You don't want to rely blindly when the stakes are high. Think of it this way. If you had to worry about a medical decision, where a procedure that was somewhat risky, that maybe had some side effects, that balancing act is going to be a little more difficult and one where I'd encourage you to think for yourself. Well, something that I thought was interesting too, you argue in the book, is that this information overload, this information complexity, this you know, too many choices, is not only affecting lay people, but it's also causing problems for the experts in the technology we rely on. How so? What's going on there? Well, think about the experts right? They live in silos and they may in fact, because they live in silos, not have an appreciation for where their work is useful or not useful. And so I encourage the experts to also take a step back and see the big picture. You know, one example I've used in the book and I, and I often talk about is imagine Brett, if you went to your cardiologist and she says to you, look, you're doing great. Your health is fabulous. However, 
I'm noticing your cholesterol levels rise a little bit. It's a little concerning. What I really want to do is put you on a uh, statin to lower your cholesterol levels. By the way, don't worry about it. Statins are completely safe and proven to work. I myself, as a cardiologist, take a statin. Most of my medical school peers are on statins. In fact, every doctor in this practice is taking a statin. We really recommend you take a statin. It works. And so you go ahead and take a statin. Later that year, you come back, you get tested, and lo and behold, your cholesterol levels have fallen. Fabulous, right? She did her job. You can claim victory. And we know with good, you know, pretty serious good research that high levels of blood cholesterol are associated with higher risk of heart attack. And she just lowered your blood level of cholesterol through a statin. Great. So that's a good thing. However, now you walk down the hall and you go see a uh, endocrinologist. And he tells you, Brett, you know what? You're doing great. Health is looking good, except I'm seeing signs of prediabetes. It looks like you're developing insulin resistance. And in fact, I think you're going to, we're going to have to address this because it's not, something's not right. There's a warning here, and I'm worried because diabetes comes with an elevated risk of heart attack. And so now we've crossed the silo away from the cardiologist to the endocrinologist, and we're seeing the exact opposite impact. Why is that? Because the way a statin works is it interferes with enzymes that impact insulin production, et cetera, and so it interferes with the system. The fact that lower cholesterol is good for you is true all else equal, but all else wasn't equal. You took a statin, a foreign object that interferes with other things. And so there's an example where crossing silos may result in a different insight than living within a silo. So, you know, I think it's useful for experts to look beyond their own silos as well. We're going to take a quick break for a word from our sponsors. And now back to the show. Well, and besides experts in technology, you've mentioned something else that can cause us to not really think for ourselves, and that's rules or procedures or you know, sort of the bureaucracy. Any examples of, of that causing us to be blind to different options? Yeah, look, I mean, sometimes checklists are useful. They've proven extraordinarily useful in reducing surgical error. They've proven extraordinarily useful in aviation where you know pilots will go down a checklist to double check everything, et cetera. It's a, it's a means to minimize sort of that complacency that comes in with regular repeated actions. And the complacency sometimes increases the error rate. So use the checklist and you reduce the error rate. However, what happens when we blindly rely on checklists or protocols is we stop thinking. And that's a problem. There's a story in the book where I talk about a checklist that was used to determine whether a patient should be removed off of a blood thinner. And the checklist said, yes, he should be removed off the blood thinner. And so this patient stopped taking blood thinner and later had a stroke. Well, it turns out one item that wasn't in the checklist was family history of strokes. It wasn't part of the checklist. And so this doctor took him off the, the blood thinner saying, oh, the checklist thought no reason to stay on the blood thinner. However, this person, his father at that very age had a stroke that he was. And so, you know, if you use a little common sense and not relied blindly on the checklist, you might have had a different recommended course of action. So there's an example, again, sorry from the medical, we're sticking with medical examples, but, you know, it's also true even within aviation. You know, Captain Sully Sullenberger, a famous U.S. air pilot who landed on the Hudson, you know, there was a checklist in the plane for what to do when you lose thrust in both engines. 
There was a checklist for that. However, that checklist was designed to be followed if you were at 35,000 feet cruising at 600 miles an hour. He was at 3,000 or 4,000 feet, hadn't yet reached an ascent level that allowed him to glide very far. And so he put the checklist aside and he thought for himself. The result was a good outcome. Well, better than it would have been, I guess, is, uh, is, is one way to think of it. So yeah, there's a couple examples from checklists. Well, so it sounds like what all these things, experts, technology, checklists, procedures, what they all do, one of the things they do is they, they, they direct our focus to a specific area, causing us not to focus on other stuff. That's right. Yep. No, that's exactly right. It's about focus management. In fact, one of the things I often suggest is that we need to mind, be mindful about where we're focusing because the experts in technologies are like spotlights and they're shining a spotlight for us in terms of where to look or what to pay attention to. When in reality, the insight may exist in the shadows. You know, we talked about the cardiologist and cholesterol, but I have to ask, like, why would you care about cholesterol? I mean, do you care about cholesterol, Brett? No. I don't think you should care about cholesterol. In fact, I don't know why I should care about cholesterol. You care about cholesterol because it might impact your heart attack risk. Well, shouldn't you just care about heart attack risk rather than cholesterol? Why are we focused on cholesterol? Well, another example from the medical, because I got that's that's an area where it's com- complex, a lot of information that affects men is the the prostate specific antigen test. It's this idea you could detect prostate cancer really early by taking this test, and you think that's a good thing, but it actually ended up causing a bunch of problems. Yeah, so that's a really uh, it's actually a tragic story, I think, on many levels for for lots of men. So. Dr. Alblin designed this test. He was a University of Arizona professor. And effectively what happened was this was a test to manage. Originally, I think the intent was to manage people that had been, because of symptoms, identified as having prostate cancer. And so you you use the PSA test to see in their blood levels, perhaps how that cancer was progressing and what to do. But the way you found out if a person had prostate cancer was they showed up with symptoms or there was some identifiable physical means to say, okay, there's a problem here. Well, what ends up happening is big business, big pharma, or not pharma, but big medicine, if you will, takes over and they start using this test as a identifier of prostate cancer. Well, it turns out most men will die with prostate cancer but very few men will die because of prostate cancer. And so it turns out that there's actually, uh, you know, with age, there's a greater preponderance of prostate cancer. So the PSA test gets, gets hijacked. And so there's more people starting to rely on the PSA test as a screening tool rather than a management tool. And so suddenly this becomes the focus. Urologists around the country, around the world, start saying, let's get a PSA test score to see whether there's a tendency or an issue of potential prostate cancer. And then they end up looking more. And then when they look more, they find more. And when they find more, they treat more. And the result was at one point, Dr. Ablin, who designed the test, the scientist who came up with it, ended up writing a New York Times op-ed. It was the most read New York Times op-ed that year that said something that was called the great prostate mistake or something like that, where he said, listen, I'm sorry. This test was not designed for use in this way. The result is millions of men have undergone treatments for an issue that may never have bothered them, an issue that may never have actually produced 
any identifiable impact on their life. And so, you know, there's, in fact, he then had a book length treatment called The Great Prostate Hoax, where he talked about how, and he starts it off as an, with an apology to men saying, you know, there's been millions of men who are probably incontinent or impotent because of procedures that might have been deemed unnecessary because of over-reliance on this one indicator. Right. So that's an example, again, like a misdirected focus. Like it, it, yeah, it just, it made you blind to the, the bigger picture and just made you hyper-focused on one thing. That's right. Well, another area that you talk about, and this is sort of your domain of business and finance, where misdirected focus, where you're, you're siloed and you're just paying attention to specific things can actually hurt businesses in the way they promote people. And this, uh, you talk about the Peter principle. Oh, thanks for asking, Brett. This is one of, I think it's a genuinely comical manifestation of this problem of misdirected focus. Well, sorry, what, so for those, yeah, for those who aren't familiar, what is the Peter principle and how does misdirected focus lead to the Peter principle? Yeah. So the Peter principle is, so there was this book in the 1960s, I think, written by Lawrence Peters and there was somebody else, but anyway, it's called the Peter principle. And what he found was he went around and, and was just frustrated by large organizations and bureaucracies. And what he did was he said, well, why are people getting promoted? Why is this person in the job? Why is this person staying in the job? And he did some research and looked into it. And what he found is really at some level, I mean, it caused me to chuckle when I first read it. And then uh, when you think about it, it's quite profound. He said, well, it turns out people get promoted by doing well in their current job. And the result is you keep getting promoted if you do well. Seemingly logical, right? The next question he asks is, when do people stop getting promoted? They stop getting promoted when they're doing poorly in their job. And he calls that, that that person has reached their, quote, level of incompetence, quote. And so the result is eventually, over time, an organization is filled with people that reach their level of incompetence, and therefore, nothing gets done. And so you can laugh about that because you're like, oh my God, obviously, if this person's really great at customer service, they're going to get promoted to run the customer service team. Well, that's a different skill, managing people rather than managing customers. And if that person's really good at managing that group of people, they get, may get promoted to you know managing a bigger, different operation, et cetera, and they'll get migrated up. And so the misdirected focus that I highlight is the Peter Principle suggests that people get promoted by how they're doing in their current job. When in fact, you should really look to promote them based on how they might do in their next job, not the job they're in. You may find an underperformer in your business who's at a particular level who once promoted may excel. Likewise, you can find someone who's doing really well in their current position that if you promote them, they'll really struggle. And so the focus on how someone's doing in their current job to determine whether they will do well in their next job really doesn't actually make a lot of sense. I mean, it's a rewarding mechanism, but it's not a mechanism that actually lines up people with the skills they need for the job they're being asked to do. Gotcha. Okay. So in that case, if you're working in a, a corporation where you determine promotions, you don't just look at how well they're performing at this job. Like, Look at the bigger picture of that person and see if they would do well where they're at right now or in a position higher. Yeah. Look, yeah, I mean, Brett, Wayne Gretzky's, I don't actually know if it's Wayne Gretzky or Wayne Gretzky's father, there's been debates on this, but there was a quote that came out of the Gretzky family, which was, one should skate to where the puck is going, not to where the puck is, 
right? So evaluating people by how they're doing in their current role is looking at where the puck is. We want to know where the puck is going. If I promote Brett to this other job, will he do well? That is independent of how he's doing in his current job. All right, so we've talked about the problem. We have all these experts, technology, rules and procedures that direct our attention and sometimes to our detriment. Let's talk about how we can overcome that and um, be a little bit more self-reliant in the 21st century. And let's talk about that managing focus. So it, it seems like the first step is just resting control of your focus from experts technology and not just completely outsourcing that thinking to them. But how do you do that when you have all these things, these algorithms, these experts and books and TV telling you, here's what you need to do. How do you rest control and start managing your attention for yourself? Yeah, it's hard to do. Like, let's be honest. So first of all, it takes effort, but let me, let me actually clarify one thing that I want to make sure comes across here. I am by no means suggesting we shouldn't listen to experts. I am not bashing experts. What I'm suggesting is we have for far too long bounced like a ping pong ball between complete deferral to experts, which I think is problematic. That's where we don't think for ourselves and we blindly outsource. But we've also bounced to the other extreme, which is complete dismissal of experts, which I also think is wrong. What we need to do is keep experts in their spot, in their place. We are the main actors. Experts are supporting actors. So, you know, we can take their insight. In fact, in the book, I say, keep experts on tap, not on top. For that reason, I think there's a role for experts and we want to rely on them and we want to tap into them and we want to get insight from them and extract value from them without completely blindly outsourcing to them. Now, one exception, and in fact, again, in the book, I mention uh, an example of a Stanford University professor, Baba Shiv, who realized that he and his wife had a cancer diagnosis and they decided they were going to take the back seat. They were going to do what the experts told them to do blindly. Now, they realized that it was emotional. And so they mindfully decided to give up control. So one, being mindful. And number two, they then spent more time figuring out who they would give up the control to. So they were mindful of who they outsourced to, and they were mindful of the very outsourcing act. So, you know, I'm okay with people outsourcing. You're thinking, I just want you to do it mindfully and intentionally rather than subconsciously or just reflexively. Gotcha. And so it sounds okay if when you if you make that decision to outsource your thinking and rely on experts, which you should. I guess one of the things you do maybe you start asking, like, what is this person missing that because of their their expertise they might be missing because they're just that's not even in their silo. Bingo. That's exactly right. Ask questions of where the information is relevant and where it might not be relevant, or what the insight is based on. So, you know, I know it's hard to ask experts. You feel like there's a status dynamic, et cetera. But when you're interfacing with an expert, I think it's eminently reasonable to ask questions about how that expert came to the conclusion that they've come to, why they're recommending it to you, and how it applies to your specific context and your specific problem or objective. So I think that's a very reasonable conversation to have. And an expert should be willing to guide you to understand why they're coming to this conclusion. Right. So that even involves like asking about their incentives. I mean, that that could be uncomfortable. It's like, well, do you make money if you tell me to do this thing? That's something you got to know that. It's uncomfortable, but worth doing. You know, there's a quote in the book. uh, I think it's from Warren Buffett, but you know, don't ever ask a barber if you need a haircut. 
right? <laughs> right. It's sort of the logic. I think that captures it, right? That sort of gets at it. Well, and besides, okay, just being more mindful of when you're ceding control and also being mindful of you know the experts, their, their limitations or the technology's limitations. You also say another important thing to be self-reliant in the 21st century is just actually knowing what you're trying to, what, like what your goals are. Yeah. And like, it seems like very basic, but how do you think people like, do they just not think about that? Like, why don't you think people think about what their actual goals are when they decide to see control over to an expert or technology? Well, it's not that you don't understand your goal. It's just that you let your goal be subservient to the expert's objectives, right? So ultimately, you know, think of the cardiologist example. The cardiologist is an expert in heart health. You are worried about your wellness, your longevity, your risk of heart attack is part of that. Ultimately, we can even ask, why do you care about a heart attack? If it doesn't kill you, I mean, yeah, you don't want to have it because there's risks, there's complications, et cetera. But ultimately, you care about living a life healthily. You want to stay well. And so, you know, your objective really should be driving your interactions with experts. Again, think of yourself as an artist putting together a mosaic and experts have the tiles. There's different tiles, they're different shapes, a different color, different texture. You put them together based on your objectives. So, you know, again, I think of it as the experts are pieces. You know where you want to go with this whole thing. So take what you need from them. It also sounds like too, as you're working with an expert, you have to look at results. And if the results, you're not getting the results you you, you wanted or desired, well, then you got to change course and maybe find another expert or do something else. Yeah, or interface with them. I mean, look, I'm not suggesting experts are bad. Maybe they don't understand your objectives. Maybe there hasn't yeah, that's been a good, clarity yeah. of communication. Right, that, that's a good point. A lot of people, <laughs> he, he might be working on different assumptions that, than you are. And, be, and so another tactic you, you recommend is just, you, you mentioned this earlier, just triangulate. Instead of just relying on one, you know, get a second or third, sometimes fourth opinion. Yeah, and don't hesitate to cross silos in those opinions that you seek. Uh, right. So, you know, I'll give you an example. Well, in fact, we talked about a cardiologist. So when you go to your cardiologist, she tells you to take a statin. Why not ask your endocrinologist what they think about you taking a statin? The obvious assumption is, well, that's not their domain. That's not their silo. That's not their area of expertise. Why would I ask them? Well, because it might interact with them in some way. They may have a unique insight or perspective on this. Oh, actually, Brett, we've seen people who take statins. It turns out they have an elevated risk of diabetes. Whoa, really? I don't want that. Okay, let me th- let me re-engage with the cardiologist with this insight. So part of the triangulation logic is an acceptance and admission that every perspective is biased, limited, and incomplete. So don't just rely on one. And that's really what I mean when I say triangulate, which is, you know, in the domain of financial bubbles where I've spent some time thinking and writing, you know, an economic perspective leads you to one insight. But a psychological perspective may lead you to another. When you add into it a political perspective, a credit perspective, a herd behavior, or even, you know, what you find is that, oh, a cultural perspective, you get a different view than you would through any one particular lens. And it reminds me of this, you know, I don't know if it's a parable, but there's a there's an often quoted story of the six blind men that stumble upon an elephant, right? So the one man, you know, grabs the leg. And he says, oh, this is a tree trunk. It's definitely a tree that we've stumbled upon. Another one grabs the, the, the tail and says, whoa, hold on a second. What we have here is a snake. And it's only through the integration of multiple perspectives that the group would be able to determine that they are, in fact, encountering an elephant. And it's the same way with a large portion of the uncertainty we face in our lives 
whether it's in medical, financial, or other domains, is that it really requires integration of multiple perspectives to get our arms around what we're facing, the problems, and even the potential solutions. Well, it sounds like too, besides getting a, a breadth of opinions from different experts, you know, being self-reliant in the 21st century and knowing how to handle expert knowledge requires the person you know, you yourself to develop a breadth of knowledge, like we read widely, have multiple perspectives. Yeah, look, I think breadth is really important at the individual level so that you can understand the limitations and boundaries of the silos in which experts and specialists live. And so reading widely, yes, is important, but it's also just developing an awareness. And and these are simple things that can be done to give you that awareness. You know, I let's just talk about reading information and the news, for instance, right? I mean, a lot of people will now, because of technology, tunnel in based on existing, you know, searches or filters or alerts. They'll be told, oh, there's something, you're in the, uh, I don't know, you're in the aerospace industry. Great. Here's this 737 MAX problem. And so you get news on that. Your alerts come in every day and you get your, your industry newsletter and it comes to you and you read it. Whereas if you took a physical newspaper or magazine and you flipped through it, you will be exposing yourself to different ideas in different domains that may be adjacent, et cetera. And you'll just be more aware, right? I mean, if you think about what's happening in business, reading the Wall Street Journal physical edition rather than the algorithmically influenced alert driven online version (laughs) You know, I think there's some value in that and in, in, in exposing you to breath. And I consistently will read, for instance, The Economist magazine cover to cover in physical form. And I do that because just even flipping pages, even if it's not interesting or not a topic I have real depth of interest in, I may, I may get some value out of seeing the headline and even reading you know, the first paragraph of it. And it's very quick, but it gives me an awareness and a breath of... Uh, of exposure that I wouldn't get if I just said, all right, I want to know about U.S.-China relations. Let me just read about that. Well, Vikram, this has been a great conversation. Where can people go to learn more about the book and your work? Sure. I think my website's probably the best spot, which is just www.manshuramani.com. And that's M-A-N-S-H-A-R-A-M-A-N-I. Or I'm on LinkedIn and Twitter as well, and you can find me there. Fantastic. Well, Vikram, thanks so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Brett. I've enjoyed the conversation. My guest today was Dr. Vikram Mansharmani. He's the author of the book, Think for Yourself. It's available on amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. Check out our show notes at aom.is slash think for yourself where you can find links to resources where you delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM Podcast. Check out our website at artofmanliness.com where you can find our podcast archives as well as thousands of articles we've written over the years about pretty much anything you can think of. And if you'd like to enjoy ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast, you can do so on Stitcher Premium. Head over to stitcherpremium.com, sign up, use code manliness at checkout for a free month trial. Once you're signed up, download the Stitcher app on Android or iOS and you can start enjoying ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate it if you take one minute to give us a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you would think we get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. Until next time, this is Brett McKay reminding you not only to listen to the AOM podcast, but put what you've heard into action. Mm-hmm.